Welcome to the Stay the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. This week it's a double bill. We've got Dominic Frisbee and Martin Cohen. Dominic Frisbee and Martin Cohen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Paul. Hello, Tim. Hello. Thanks, Hello, Paul and Tim. Thanks, Dominic. So, uh, this, this 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 introduction session could actually last a whole hour if we do it properly Britishly. Yeah, we we've started with some comedy as well, which is which is uh, which is great. So, of course, we can't jump to the comedy before we actually ask Dominic about the financial markets, which actually may involve quite a lot of comedy in itself. But Dominic, what what do you think is going on at the moment? And I'm talking about equities and. The, Interest uh, rates, bonds, currencies, everything, that, commodities, all, all the good stuff, Bitcoin, that crypto, you've been, that you've been covering on your on your YouTube channel um, with your very interesting walk and talks, which I, I really like. And so, what, what do you think is going on? Well, these are very difficult markets, Paul, and you you drew the comparison there, Tim, between comedy and the markets. And if you think of all the different genres of comedy, you know, there's slapstick, there's black comedy, there's uh, light comedy, there's sitcoms, there's, um, you know, right through to tragedy. And um, at different times, you get all of those different types of comedy play themselves out in the markets. And at the moment, we're somewhere between slapstick and uh, tragedy, I would say. it's these are very difficult markets. I think one key factor that few people have seemed to have cottoned on to is that in the post two thousand and eight era, you know, it, it, it the, the powers that be, the Federal Reserve and so on, were terrified of deflation, and so everything they did was about countering what they call deflation, and now they're terrified of inflation. And so all the support that there was for asset prices that we've grown used to, to the extent that we think the markets can never go down, they're no longer there because the Fed is worried about inflation. And if sorry, it to, get- sorry, to, sorry to get into them. Do, do you think they're genuinely worried or do you think they're just trying to, trying to portray a worry because that's their kind of mandate? I think it's a bit of both. I think, you know... I don't, they can't put interest rates up to 8, 9, 10 or 11 or 12%. They just can't do it. The whole Western world implodes and nobody will ever get elected again. But, the, but you know, they must, they're genuinely worried about it. And, you know, the, if markets can come off 20 or 30% and, you know, Bitcoin collapses and metals are down and the oil price can come off 30 or 40%, well, that actually helps them because it slows the velocity of money down. Everyone will be begging for a bit of stimulus. Wallets will be hurting. You know, there won't be the full employment and all those things that you're not supposed to have. And so, you know, it actually helps the powers that be that we've had this correction. And, and I, you know, we're recording this today, Friday, the 24th of June. I think we've either seen the low in the S&P um, or there's a counter trend rally going on. I've been studying the the um, prices in 2008, and what I noticed is that, you know, it's it's stu- if you if I said there's going to be a crash, I'd get loads of hits on my article, and I'd get loads of media attention. But in reality, there have only been two crashes this century, and there were probably what three or four in the last century. So they're outlier events. So pre- predicting crashes is you know, you're more often than not, you're going to be wrong. But 
it's quite interesting that in 2008, um, markets peaked, then metals peaked, then oil peaked. There was a, uh, and then everything crashed. And we seem to be following a similar pattern now. And it doesn't necessarily mean anything. You read into it what you like, but but it, it wouldn't surprise me to see another, you know, one of our once a decade crashes um, uh, in the autumn. Uh, th- this autumn, really? Yeah. Okay. I think this would just, we're, we're it, you know, it, it, I'm just saying it wouldn't surprise, I'm saying it's 10, 20% chance, something like that. Right, right. You know, we've had our, everything's down, we're having a little summer bounce now, and then everything falls off a cliff in the autumn. Right. It's possible. Elevated, I'm, I'm, elevated risk. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also, I, I mean, you know, I'm long the S&P, I bought it two days ago. I think there's a, you know, I'm betting on a rally at the moment and it remains to be seen whether it's a, you know, 15, 20% relief rally or it's... it's dead cat bounce. Yeah, it could be a dead cat bounce or it could be the beginning of a new trend. Who knows? So if I, if I may give you a kind of um, sort of structure of how I was thinking about the markets, I, th- I thought there was, in, in the run-up to the Fed move, the dollar was a bit like a black hole. Every, everything was going into that. All money was being attracted to the US dollar. And... It was going at such a rate, it told me that there was something more going on than just a normal 50 basis point rise. It was actually just a few days before I got a feeling something's not right here. You know, it feels like they're going to do more. But I I basically thought, well, 50's done and that's it. And maybe it's because of the war kind of premium that's pushing the dollar up. Um, But as soon as that's happened, the dollar's not really gone much further. Yields have stopped rising. And anybody who bought into that that news would be effectively sitting on potentially some losses or maybe just for very small profits, depending on the timing. Then we saw the collapse, obviously, in Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies. And last Saturday, it just felt so falling off a cliff low that... I got a sense that this is this feels like it's gone far enough now, and it's it hit the 2017 sort of high. If you remember that 20,000 high that Bitcoin hit, when when a lot of people were saying, in the you know smart people were saying, look, I think this is overdone. There's going to be a big correction, and there was this big correction, but it wasn't the end of Bitcoin. So it's kind of come back to that point, and. So there's all these things that are kind of lining up where the dollar's potentially in the last phase of its strength. You've got um, the Fed have already moved and they've told us what they're going to do. And Bitcoin's had its move and now it's potentially trying to find a base, although we don't know for sure. Um, and the, the, I think the dollar is the key to the next step. If the dollar starts to weaken, then perhaps we'll see more risk on trades and things will reverse now quite for how long i don't know but that that's kind of the sense of of how i feel things are going to go now we had david murren just on um on the previous pod and his his view was it's just going to go straight down and it's going to be a massive collapse akil patel um who's we've just released his pod he looks at cycle analysis as well but obviously different cycles he thinks a bit more like what you've just said. We're close to a low here. And and I, I kind of feel the same thing, really. But you're prefacing it with 
you think it's going to potentially turn in the autumn or we should be at elevated risk of it turning or be aware of that potential. So with the structure of gold and silver, gold and silver haven't really moved. Base metals are starting to go down in line with demand destruction. Um, I think the key, the next key is, is, is the dollar. What, what, what do you think about that? Uh, is that to me? Paul? Yes. Yes. Uh, 103, 104 um, is the, on the US dollar index. Uh, that's the US dollar against a basket of its major trading partners against the yen, the krona, the euro, the pound and the Canadian dollar. 103, 104 is one of those pivotal price points for me. I think it's been as high as 105. Yeah. Um, but if it can, you know, it was, there's that, been, it's sorry, been a, is, that, is that DXY? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if it can get above, properly above 105, I know I sound like one of those technical no, no, people, you're but right. it could go you're all right. the way to 120, really? which would wow. be the old high. Shit, that's, that's a long way. It's a long way. I think 120 was where it was in 2001. I can't remember. Let me. I haven't got the chart in front of me. I can, I can, get, I can get it up while you. While you while it's you all right. Up. I've yeah. got it up actually. Um, uh, I'm that super quick. Yeah. Um, I think it went, went to uh, 120. Yeah. At at, uh, at the beginning of the century, and that in itself was an outlier. If you go back further than that, it's you know 103, 104 is the high. But 103 uh, was the high when. Uh, Obama stood down at the end of the Obama presidency. It went to that level in the corona panic. And here we are at that level now. So it's either doing a massive triple top <laughs> or in which case, if it comes down, then that's good for metals and all the other things that have taken a hammering, probably good for equities as well. Um, and But if it goes above there, then this then we're probably crashing in equities. If we go up, if we go up to 120, the, the markets will have crashed for sure. Right. So, um, so the low in, I mean, cryptocurrencies, there's a lot of talk people, some people saying you got to buy now and they're talking about big numbers on the upside. Possibly that's some of the clickbait, uh, that you were talking about. You know, if you say there's a crash or if you say Bitcoin's going to go to 200,000, I'm sure you get lots of people clicking on it. Um, but what is, what is the reality? Do you, do you still feel that it's a long-term investment? Oh, for a hundred percent, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the most powerful computer network uh, in the world in in all recorded history, and just by owning some Bitcoin, you're effectively owning shares in that. And it's a breakthrough technology, and you know it's money for the internet. And you just look at all the uh, way that the uh, the West, the America, especially weaponized the dollar after Russia invaded Ukraine, and it confiscated all those assets just like that. And, you know, the, the use case for Bitcoin just went up a load. The real difference uh, between the US dollar and Bitcoin is, you know, some things happen from the bottom up. You know, uh, like our system of weights and measures, for example, imperial weights and measures, it happened from the bottom up. You know, people started using feet because feet was just what a shoe with a boot on was. Or you'd use a hand because that was all you had to hand when you're measuring the height of a horse. Or you use an inch because it's a thumb pressed down. You know, it was a, it was a system that happened organically from the bottom up. And then sometimes you get stuff mandated from government. And, uh, you know, and the US dollar is a is a mandated from up top. You know, met, the metric system of measure is mandated by government. Because on the ground, as many people 
use still use feet and inches and pounds and so on whereas you know metric is you must use this system of measures and if you don't at one stage <laughs> you went to jail and uh, but the the so one is top down and one is bottom up and fiat money the us dollar it's obviously top down um whereas bitcoin is very much a bottom up technology and it's individuals that have it started with individuals it started with shoe shine boys it didn't start with top institutional top institutions it's the other way around and so i think institutions the whole thing of institutions adopting bitcoin i think as and governments adopting it i mean it's still starting to happen but it's still very very slow and it's just one of those things it's going to happen from the, it, it's going to happen it, it has already happened and will happen from the bottom up so but the use case for it and the need for it in this world of capital controls and see financial weaponization and so on one just went up a load I mean, that's so interesting because I, I completely agree with that. And I almost, well, I put a note out saying I thought that um, it could become a safe haven asset, but that was while it was collapsing and it felt it felt wrong to say it. But it was like psych psychologically with the manipulation that's going on, it felt like the, the use case had just gone up a step. I mean, of course, there's gold and silver and we can talk about those in a moment, but it it's because it can't be influenced by any particular individual um, and it's, it is decentralized. Well, the world seems to be moving to a place of more and more control. So it's use case has increased. Now the fact that you can't um, use it for, or I, mean, I suppose you can with the lightning network for day-to-day -day transactions, as well as people th thought you might be able to right at the beginning. And there's other technologies that have come out, to try and fulfill that role and some of them have not been as successful as expected um hasn't really dented its appeal because it's being seen i think more more for safe haven and long-term investment than day-to-day -day buying your cup of coffee w would you say that that that's that's correct or would you disagree well it's not it's not really for day-to-day -day buying your coffee and it never was it's money for the internet it's not money for the real world and but you're you're right with the lightning thing the 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 the, the big argument against bitcoin that it's it's too slow and clunky for uh, tiny transactions that's long since been dispelled by lightning that's like four or five years out of date that argument now lightning has i think it's something like 500 times more transaction potential per second than visa or some um, amazing stat like that i forget let's get might even be 500 anyways it, it's an incredible amount better than visa in that regard um i'll tell you a little story paul and tim and uh, martin the the when in 1860, whatever it was, 1861, they built, they finally, they'd been trying for 20 years, but they finally got the first transatlantic cable going under the ocean. And um, between New York and it was actually between Ireland. And there was a big slogan at the time, two weeks to two minutes, because previously to send a message from London to New York had taken two weeks. But now with the transatlantic cable, you could do it in two minutes. And within, and so Queen Victoria sent President Johnson a little message and uh, he replied. And, you, you know, in, at first they were using Morse code and then it just, and then they were sending multiple messages at once. But within three weeks of that first cable being la laid, the first money was sent um, between Britain and the US through that cable. And that's why the US dollar is known as cable. 
um, the US dollar pound exchange rate is known as cable. And it was and it was because of that message that was sent through the cable that they were able to agree the first ever exchange rate. And but what that message was, was, you know, in those days, gold and silver to, to an extent were money, but you, they didn't send gold down the cable. They sent a promise. And, and the promise was upheld by two parties who trusted each other, two banks. And that's the way that fiat money works. It's, it's promises. And, you know, gold is nobody else's liability, but you can't send it over the Internet. But the breakthrough technology of Bitcoin is it's the first system of money that you can send over the Internet that isn't a promise. And when, when you understand the, the significance of that, you're actually sending assets over the internet, when you understand digital assets, when you understand the significance of that, that perhaps gives you an understanding of 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 why Bitcoin is such a breakthrough. And presumably, just to extend that that thought, since the internet presumably cannot be destroyed, then effectively Bitcoin could be like a permanent form of currency. Yes, exactly. In a way that fiat can't necessarily be, because I think it was Voltaire that said that all fiat currencies ultimately um, deteriorate to their intrinsic value, which is zero. Yeah, I think it's all paper money or, paper or money, something yeah. like that. But it, but, yeah. The, the, but yeah, I mean, he lived through the destruction of the assignat, but the um, which was the sort of post-revolutionary money <laughs> that went tits up. That wasn't that wasn't John Law, was it? Was that, no, that was earlier. That was, was about earlier. that was about three collapses earlier. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a trend here. There's a trend here because the, the 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 title I always cite in talking about um, basically government interference and things like that, and I'm sure it's one you're familiar with, is 40 centuries of wage and price controls. That basically governments have been mucking around with money and prices and attempting to control inflation for 4,000 years. And the reality is that they've never, ever managed to succeed. Or if they have at least achieved temporary success, it's only been because something else has got fucked up in the process. Yeah. Well, most of the time they cause it. Yeah. Can I, can I just come in on Dominic's argument that um, Bitcoin is somehow different from conventional currencies? Um, because it seems to me we go a little bit Marxist. I mean, what people want is food and and warmth and shelter. Bitcoin isn't food, warmth and shelter. No, it's a digital asset. Yes, but so you have that conversion between that and what you actually want, these material things. So in that sense, why is it any different from a from a normal currency, which also has to be converted? Well, normal currencies, their value is determined, is set by government and central banks, whereas Bitcoin is entirely set by the market. Yeah, but, but look, I mean, we used to have like the gold standard, but people didn't actually want gold. You don't eat gold. What, what the use of gold was that you could do things with it. And this is the point I'm getting at, is that everything ultimately comes down to very practical things. And so the conversion is there just as much uh, isn't it? It's between yeah, if nobody bits. if nobody wants to accept your bitcoins, you're in trouble. But as yeah. long as people accept want to accept it, then you're fine. Well, that's it, and that's what we're seeing recently. With people don't want the bitcoins. Well, well it's still be, ten times higher than it was t two years ago. But to be fair, if you go on the basis of recent market uh, price discovery, then nobody wants anything at the moment. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very interesting argument that um, that if you look at it on. It, I was going to say on paper, but of course that's uh, that's what money is. What what actual fiat 
currency is 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 just that it's if somebody wants to accept it and increasingly what we're seeing is that people want to accept more money for the same goods and services that they did before that's obviously inflation and the problem comes if you end up in a period of very high inflation or maybe hyperinflation that it's in that situation when the value of money starts to go down very quickly against goods and services. I don't think anyone would disagree that we we all ultimately need, um, you know, food, shelter, and and um, and energy and all all that stuff, which is what money pays for. But it, when it comes down to the psychology of money, um, money has been many different things uh, to many different people, from leaves to tally sticks to giant um, giant pieces of rock yeah to all sorts of things and it's it's, it's the it, people of of uh, i mean there's something called the is there the brixton pound i don't know if that's still yeah. going yeah there's the i've Brix got a brixton oh, in fact it got stolen oh no <laughs> i had a brixton pound or i think i had a brixton 10 pounds and i had it on my wall and one of my son's weed smoking mates nicked it oh that's, <laughs> <laughs> um so so money is really what what anybody else will accept. And I, I think the, the, the argue, I totally understand why you're saying what you're saying, Martin, because it's something that I thought um, very early on. But I think the difference is that with the blockchain and with Bitcoin or certain crypto, crypto assets, the blockchain is immutable, which means that you can't just decide to change it. You can't just put an extra zero on as a government and decide that there's going to be more Bitcoin. And you, you so you just can't do that. Um, okay, you could try and hack the system, but it, at the moment, it seems extremely robust. There have been some attempts. People have lost their wallets, but that's not the same as actually hacking the system. So it's rem it remains robust. One of my fears was that quantum computers would, would render it useless. But a very smart uh, IT friend of mine tells me that actually it can be made um, safe in, for, for those future technologies. Um, so, so it's really, it, it, money is actually more about what we think it is rather than what it actually is. It's almost philosophical, which is definitely in your wheelhouse, Martin. Just to, yeah. just to wade it on the sort of the, the technical side, the classic economic definition of money is, is that it has three attributes. It's a unit of account, it's a medium of exchange, and it's a store of value. I think the, the pertinent point that we're all sort of focusing on, um, and uh, when I say we, um, it's like globally we, is that the fiat currency does not act as a store of value. It never has and it never will. Except this year. Sorry, in, in, in what context? Well, it's it, fiat money's up like you know twenty five percent against gold and twenty five percent against the stock market and about eighty percent against Bitcoin this year. I'm talking about sure, but they, like, that feels is, more like a blip than a sort of existential uh, crisis. There isn't the ongoing erosion of value thing, but this this is one of the one of the rare occasions when it has actually gone up. So I, I so I have a, an open question to to the three of you, which is Ludwig von Mises, who's one of the sort of the forefathers of the so called Austrian or, or classical economic school coined this phrase, the uh, crack-up boom, 
And Mises had firsthand experience of the Weimar hyperinflation in 1923 in Austria. And the crack-up boom was and theoretically is what happens when the, the man in the street suddenly realizes that central banks and government are destroying the purchasing power of the currency so quickly that they rush to convert their increasingly worthless paper into harder physical assets that are a better store of value. Do you slash we think that we are already in the early stages of the crack-up boom? Uh, I, I can answer that, but does somebody else want to have a go? Because I feel I've talked too much. No, you haven't. Um, please, <laughs> please, please talk. Um, Tim, I've thought we're in the crack up boom since 2000 and, you know, I think I first started reading since, about since, all this. Since 1971. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Since I first read about it, 2006, uh, was when I first heard the expression and I thought we were in it then. I th and I, th you know, and then 2008 happened and, but you know, the reason I was so persuaded by all the hard money arguments is w w because I've never understood why houses cost so much. And until you understand that houses are simply a function of, of money supply growth. And so when I was trying to buy my, I bought my first flat in 1993 and I look back now and I can't believe how cheap it was. But at the time I thought it was a rave, raving ripoff. Yeah. 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 You know, I've never been able. So I, I think we've been in the crack up boom. Yeah. It's probably since 1914, to be honest. See, the, the house thing is, I think, interesting because people, you know, that is clearly something that you do have a use value and it's a practical thing. You, you bought your house because you needed to, to live somewhere. <laughs> um, yet, they are just speculative assets as well. And people, um, to some extent, you know, you've merged the two things. It's hard to say it's, it's a real useful product and how much of it is, is an investment. Um, and to some extent, I, I think these distinctions like between uh, money being uh, just just for exchange and so on, it's like Tim's saying, you know, it's got the various functions. Everything's got these various functions. They all sort of blur. Yeah. Yeah. That That, that is, um, yeah, that, it's, it's such an interesting area because property falls into the area of speculation, but it also falls into the area of it not not being money but it also does measure like children mark time anyone who's got kids will know that they mark time for you the value of your house marks the amount of destruction the governments are doing to our money and it always feels too expensive um always and but it's a if you listen to akil patel and he's going to release his book at some point which i think will will answer a lot of questions in this area He's saying it's just a function of how much the the banks make property affordable. So property is relatively affordable because interest rates are so low, and therefore it's a function of it's a function of that. It's always a function of the cost of money and how much the um, the banking system is stoking the, uh, the, the 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 speculative area. So, yeah, can I just? Quibble with you on that. It's Please. all a bit more elastic. Yeah, sure. You know, so yes, like in, we've seen it. We've seen it in Britain. Uh, interest rates are very low, but the prices are astronomical. And the way people worked with they were getting a mortgage was they worked out how much can I afford each month. And when the interest rates very low, they thought I can afford um, a very expensive house. But all the houses in Britain are incredibly expensive. They're sort of ludicrous uh, price compared to across the channel. 
Um, but it doesn't actually mean, you know, it hasn't helped people that British that the, the banks are offering these low rates. All that happened was that the house prices uh, shot up. Yeah, I mean, look, you're absolutely right. But it also means that people with money can then borrow money to then buy property. So it's actually helped people who already have possibly a portfolio of assets and are looking to extend them, which unfortunately pushes out the first-time buyer who ends up having to rent. But I, I, in my um, early career, was a mortgage officer and I had to go through um, people's, uh, to go through their bank statements and work out how much we could lend them. And you, you, in the old days, you would literally take off all their, their outgoings and work out what they had left. And then there was a multiple of something like three times, but this was what they had left, not their gross income. And, and so the fact that the lending criteria has eased so much will always, you know, the affordability will always drive the prices higher when yields are low, because the, these property speculators are going to say, okay, if I buy that plot of land or that, 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 that house, I can rent it out and make, you know, maybe 20% uh, over the year, or I can have the people who are living in it pay the mortgage. So effectively, over the term of the mortgage, they are getting a free house. It's being paid for. And and as an asset, that, that works. As long as those numbers work, you're going to get money flowing into the property market. So it really is a quest question of lending criteria and the banking system. But we asked uh, Akil about the, the, the London market, and, and he says that the way it works is yes, London is extremely expensive, but then it filters out into other areas. And so it's clearly too expensive, has been for a very long time. And even because due to COVID, it's still not made it anywhere near more affordable. Um, and then amazingly, it's, it's actually gone up from there. So uh, it's looking at the areas outside. So second homes, places in the country, and also pl places abroad as well. I'm, I'm sure where you are in France must have gone up a lot, despite no. COVID. <laughs> it hasn't? Okay. No, it went down, actually, where I live. Really? Normandy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That... It really went down over the last 10 years. It's actually dropped. By, by about how much? <laughs> uh, about 20%. Right, okay. Um, and it, it is bizarre, because I've, I've got three sisters. Okay, we're all similar. Um, so they have, they have more standard jobs. Um, they're, they're, between them, they probably have a, a property portfolio of several million pounds. You, you know, mm. they didn't actually earn that money. It just has gone up. It's just money that's been conjured. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I think part of that problem, though, is that with European countries, you've got the euro, and the euro is a problem. The euro does not allow France's economy to operate the way France wants it to. So it will be constrained by the strength or the weakness of the euro because it's trying to average out what's going across, going on across all these different countries, which is, which in some areas, it will mean that the euro is way too high. In some areas, maybe in Germany, maybe the euro is way too low. So and then the great thing about <clears throat> excuse me the great thing about the whole European project the ERM project is that there's no plan B, so I think the euro is destined to fail because it was a foolhardy attempt to crowbar how many twenty odd countries into one currency block when their economies are by no means in sync. 
if you have a look at a long-term chart of, say, the Italian stock market or the the um, the Spanish stock market or the Portuguese stock market, and then you compare it to the UK stock market or the American stock market, it's the, the underperformance is absolutely massive. It's just incredible how how much they've underperformed, and it can only be because of the currency. I can't mm. believe that it's any other reason. Why should it be any other reason? You, you are absolutely right. There's a there's a an absolute bible of a, a, a term called uh, triumph of the optimists, which covers the last the twentieth the entire twentieth century by asset class, and it, and it points out the, exactly the point you've made, which is when people talk about equity markets being and talk about when people talk about equities being the asset class par excellence, they really mean the Anglo-Saxon markets because the UK and the US stock market have done well over that period. There are other markets. China and Russia, for example, that closed and never reopened. And as you say, there are plenty of markets that have really, really lagged. So people should be careful about making sort of sweeping statements about asset classes without going into the sort of the, let's say, the the local technicalities. On the the point about properties, there's one thing I'd, I'd, I'd like to add, which is property is not an asset class that you can typically invest into without borrowed money, without leverage. And we, we've just been, Killian, my colleague and I, uh, have been presenting to a few clients over the last couple of weeks. And one, the very first slide we use in our little slide pack is a history of interest rates going back 5,000 years. And I think people are insufficiently aware of the fact that we are just coming off the lowest level of interest rates in all of human history. The fact that, let's take, make it more recent, for the last 40 years, interest rates have been coming down across the world. And as a result, in part, stock markets have had a very good time on, on balance over that period. What has worked for the last 40-odd years is not necessarily going to work in the near to medium term because nobody in a dealing room, nobody in a asset management capacity alive has really had any previous experience of a bear market in bonds and a bear market interest rates. All bets are off now to the extent that you know, we are now entering uncharted territory and inflation's high, and interest rates have to go higher. And as Dominic was saying earlier, the central banks are in this mother of all binds because they the market wants interest rates to go higher, but they can't put them higher because they'll crash everything. Uh, I, I think of all the people that we've spoken to recently, I'm I'm sort of inclined to sympathy with David, the David Murren argument, which is, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but David Murren, which will release the the podcast in the next next week or so is expecting the, the outlook to be worse than 1929. I mean, it just connects back to what Dominic was talking about at the beginning. I mean, I, the phrase is a perfect storm. I, I, that's the mm. way I see it as an, a generalist observing things. You've got also the problem that the energy prices are much higher, um, which is a separate bugbear. You, you went on about the euro. Let me just go on about green green energy because they really have shoved up energy prices by... Um, trying to to outlaw fossil fuels and the, mm. the decommissioned or the coal power stations. That, that the effects of that, which I wrote about about ten years ago, it was, it was an extraordinary thing to do. The prices were bound to double, treble, quadruple, and that's that's what we're seeing in recently now. But it was always in the pipeline, so to speak. No pun intended. Um, and then and then now we've got the. The problem with the world's food supplies being disrupted, which was going to be a, like a, a slow-moving problem, but it's going to like the brick pulled by elastic. It will hit people probably 
next year or the year after, um, much higher food prices. And so you've got all those factors, including the financial ones, and you've got probably the most incompetent and useless political class that we've had for 100 years. Seconded. Dominant. Bereft of any kind of principle. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we made some points about the euro, Dominic. What, what, do, you, what do you think about that? And, um, well, in the short term, I was just looking at it, some charts earlier today. I think it might have make, been making a, a turning up against the um, US dollar. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I listened to a very good interview with Druckenmiller, Stanley Druckenmiller, the oh, other yeah. day. And he was talking about, he, he sees some opportunities coming up in Forex. And, and he was talking about some short trade setting up in the US dollar because the US dollar's led the world with its monetary policy this year. It's put up inflation, it's put up interest rates quicker than anyone else. But as other start, countries start to do that, you know, their currencies will catch up. And so he sees a, a short US dollar in the Forex markets as a potential trade later this year. He didn't say when and he didn't say definitely, but he just mm. said he was looking at it. Mm. I think that's quite an interesting idea. He says he's too pessimistic, um, and but... His sort of worst case scenario is a return to the 1930s. I'm more optimistic because I just believe in, you know, progress and human life constantly gets incrementally better. And we only report and notice the bad stuff. We don't notice the good stuff. Um, so I'm, I don't think we're going in for another lost decade in tech, for example. I think techs, the the, the um, hiss has come out of the you know the the hiss has come out of the bubble and tech's collapsed and your pelotons are down 95% and your crappy bitcoin um derivatives are all down 90% or whatever they're down but um you know there'll be a washout there'll be a bit of sideways action and then i think tech will get going again it you know it's just so scalable in a way that the the the, the tangible economy just isn't so um martin you you mentioned that you wrote about coal and obviously energy is a big problem at the moment what, what do you think will happen do you think they'll start to commission nuclear power plants or um is there another solution um yeah i was actually talking to some american podcast yesterday which it was supposed to be me as con uh, sort of nuclear skeptic and a nuclear pro person and a moderator actually the moderator was very very pro-nuclear <laughs> to the extent that they actually cut me off, wouldn't allow me to have um, ha have any concluding remarks. Um, that that's because in America, nuclear is still considered um, sort of a modern progressive thing, a bit like Bitcoin, one might say. Um, <laughs> I'm being a little bit uh, subversive there. Now, um, I, I don't think nuclear is any point to it. I, I, I wrote a book about nuclear and then went very carefully. I had to spend many many months researching the economics of it. Um, the fact is, when you pin it down, nuclear is only 2% 2, 2 or, or so of world energy. That's not world electricity, world energy. 2% is just nothing. You could save 2% of energy by wearing your jumper. You, you know, um, it, it's not going to scale up either. And that's also a problem with the, the wind energy and solar energy, because though we're quite impressed by what's happened, you know, the technology advances, unlike nuclear, nuclear never advances, it just becomes more and more expensive. And uh, the 
problems remain, but the wind energy and solar have become far more effective. But nonetheless, the, 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 the physics of it remains. If you want a significant amount of solar energy, you have to cover very significant proportion of the ground. You know, you know, unrealistic proportion. Thousands of square miles of land have to be covered with solar panels. The same with wind turbines. You have to have a wind turbine every 100 metres right round the British coast. And none of these things are scalable. There's also a problem with electric cars like that. We're, we're, we've got into that. The governments have thrown money at it. Um, but if everyone has an electric car and they plug them into the grid to charge them up, that energy has to come from somewhere. We haven't actually solved that one either. So I think there's a completely bogus debate about where the energy will come from. Uh, myself, I think for the time being, we still need our fossil fuels, and I'm not being paid by the fossil fuel industry to say that. <laughs> possibly we can do more with things like tidal power, and, and, and um, possibly there is some small place for the renewables. But at the moment, there are, there are no magic solutions to it. I, I, I just see people have rushed into uh, an imaginary world of modern energy, which isn't there. Okay. Mm. Mm. I mean, I mean, I, yeah, that, I mean, that's an, that's an interesting point without knowing how much power can be made by modern nuclear power plants. 2% uh, sounds very low, but then again, that's against all energy. And was that the old nuclear power plants, or is that the more that I understand? There's new technology out there that's that's safer. It could be more efficient. Do you still uh, own your Rolls Royce, uh, Dominic? Just for the, oh yeah, I do. Yeah, and I'm I'm almost I'm probably forty percent down. I bought them in the SIP. I tend to just buy stuff in the SIP and forget about it, which is a bad way well sometimes is a good way to invest in a bull market is a terrible way to invest in a bear market but but the but rationale the, was for their modular small yeah small, wasn't exactly it? that yeah so, sorry i i missed what what you invested in sorry dominic what was it so i thought and, and i don't have a deep knowledge of this but i was just i'd stumbled across this article in a local newspaper in the middle of devon written by this dude uh from you know, a, a, some kind of engineer who had a lifetime's experience in engineering, and he was complaining about all the wind farms that had been built in Holsworthy or somewhere like that. It was like, you know, the biggest wind farm in the country, and he was complaining about how much space it had taken up, how it wasn't um, environmentally friendly because of all the fossil fuels that had gone into producing them in the first place and the bird life and all the various arguments that you've heard. And then he started making the case for what he calls small modular reactors, which are small nuclear reactors. And he argued that one nuclear reactor, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it was like roughly the size of a nuclear reactor that you'd have in a nuclear submarine would be enough, uh, you know, in a less than an acre or something would be enough to power the whole of Devon and, you know, there aren't the same regulatory hurdles that you would have with um, Hinkley or one of those big nuclear power plants. And there aren't the same risks and the technologies tried and tested for the last few decades. And um, 
so he was making the argument for them and uh and i thought oh that sounds really good and then so i was looking into who, who makes them and uh, there was a couple of american companies and rolls royce and i thought well whoever's going to get the english contract is going to be rolls royce and they'd already landed a few contracts and so i thought i'd identified a huge uh, growth trend mm. but it turns out rolls royce is rolls royce and nobody cares <laughs> But maybe Rolls Royce are down. I haven't looked at their share price, but because of the um, the slowdown in the the travel industry, but that that may well turn around. Yeah, well, they were down, and then they they were down at like I can't remember forty fifty p or something, and then it went all the way up to about one twenty, one thirty, one forty, and now it's like at eighty or ninety p again. Right, right. But they, so they're above the Corona panic lows. Yeah. So, but that that's that sounds like a very strategic position that's that's going to take another 10 years to come to fruition well i hope so that's one of the reasons i haven't bothered to try and trade it but you know looking back i should have sold when it went below the 50 five day moving average or whatever your system is you know yeah um so so martin i just wanted to pick up on a point you, you you were saying that the argument about energy is bogus perhaps i misheard you but um I, I would have I would have thought that if nuclear isn't the answer and the government are moving away from fossil fuels, then the I, I just, what else what else is there to do? What else can we do? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, effectively, people haven't really moved away from fossil fuels. That's why I think you say it's all bogus. I see. Um, and and you've seen countries like Canada, which are very strong on. Uh, global warming and so forth they're exporting more coal than they used to um and indeed uh, i i think overall the world consumption of fossil fuels goes up steadily you, you know um nuclear is basically i think it's something like 10 50 maybe 15 percent of the world electricity and then often the the discussion is they say 15 percent of world energy because there's a most strange convention in these circles which is people swap the word energy and electricity they interchange them so <laughs> when when dominic mentioned that figure for devon it was probably the electricity consumption of devon that was being talked about not the energy oh yeah no it was it was it was devon it was electricity yeah because there's three there's three forms of energy consumption there's heating electricity and transport and I, i'm if i said it if i use the wrong word i apologize but i meant electricity needs but you, you but, but the seen... electricity demand is on the up relative to other yeah uh, forms you, because of more electric motors and so on you, you often see uh, even you know reputable sources like reuters um using the word um energy when they mean electricity there so uh, it, it is very confusing for general population um, and that enables the nuclear industry to get away with it appearing to be much more of a solution than it really is um, so yeah what are the solutions well i i think as i say in the short term that you have to keep burning uh fuels um one fuel that you can burn which you have a sort of soft spot for is wood um now it might sound really a stupid thing to say but if i'm in france actually a very significant proportion of heating is done by wood in France, and it's not traded on any market, so it doesn't even show up in the national statistics. It's grown locally and sold locally. Often, it's untaxed. You see, and it's also it's also properly renewable. And and in in that yeah, it's actually protecting uh, land because it still has it's still useful to have foot woods. 
and forests. There's a quite a lot of forest in France which just wouldn't be there if someone decided that the wood couldn't be sold for, for that purpose. Um, so wood is not, and it's true in Africa as well, there's an awful lot of energy that is done just through burning. I think they burn manure in Africa, which sounds rather a useless fuel, but it's effective. You, you know, I remember being in the desert and they would all burn camel dung. Yeah, wow. it, it's bizarre, isn't it? We talk about nuclear, you see. Worldwide, all the nuclear power stations together can make up about this 2 two to 3% of world energy. How much energy is actually coming from burning manure? <laughs> it, it, it might be significant. Now, I, I, don't, I don't see a solution. I haven't got a magic solution. People talk about things like mirrors in space. I think this is all stupid as well you, you know I, I i suspect what what you might get one day is is much better use of, of the tides which would be very expensive but i i, I think that could be really where like, what they call base load and stuff would come in from very big projects on estuaries I've and that's also pro properly renewable and you know again indefinite indefinite i mean it'll always be there for as long as you have the moon yeah, exactly. You're using yeah, it's funny. What was his name? That guy. He was really good on oil, and he died. Matt, Matt, somebody died about ten years ago. But he was a huge fan of um, tidal power as well. And for some reason, it just doesn't catch on in the same. It probably doesn't get the same subsidies, or but for some reason, you know, wind and solar are the sort of left wing energies of choice and nuclear is like the right wing is energy of choice unless yeah. you're really right wing in case you like in which case you like oil you, you've got a <laughs> and green coal lobby. and coal and a, a green lobby pushing nuclear coal is for chinese industrialists mm. and uh but yeah but i don't understand who, who likes tidal and it seems to be such an obvious problem solver yeah it's much more reliable than the wind yeah but dominic there is this thing there is this green lobby that including people like George Monbiot, who argue for nuclear. They're very dominant. Yeah, no, they've, a lot of the, the like the original Green Priest, there's a lot of um, anti-nuclear people who've come over to the nuclear side. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, there's quite a few high-profile ones. I think Ga Guy Gaia might even be for it, whatever his name was. Yes, yes, he is. But that's right, yeah. Um, I've forgotten him. <laughs> He's very pro-nuclear. Yeah, yeah. So, given that we've, talked about the markets uh was there anything else that you you wanted to say about um uh, say precious metals or anything like that dominic or, or, or martin before we move over to the comedy please god go up <laughs> <laughs> the low is in the low is in you heard it here first oh fantastic revulsion low is now in yeah my, my, my advice to everyone is to put their money into things they can eat or live in right so because I, there will be a big crash I'm, I'm i'm thinking as well i think it's coming so are you prepping then would you say start start stocking up start pickling yeah yeah <laughs> prepare for nuclear winter right what do you, do you really think there'll be do you think there'll be some form of nuclear attack um well i hope not let's i could put that in a very feeble way but uh, honestly i no i don't think there'd be a nuclear war myself I, I, do, I do think there'll be a global financial crash and crisis. Right. And do you think it will be this year or, or is there any time frame on that? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the great thing about the stock markets. <laughs> a, a week after it, we can be very precise. 
<laughs> yes, but presumably you're looking at certain factors that are leading towards what could be a crash. And those those factors are either becoming stronger or weaker as time goes on. And therefore the risk obviously increases yeah, more. Yeah, the risk, exactly. I, 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 would, I would be a bit worried about it. That's basically what I'm saying. Mm. I, I, would say, I would say could happen in a few months easily. Mm. So, Dom, so what Dominic was saying, that there's, there's a increased sort of risk as we go potentially into autumn or for this year. So, yeah. So it's, it's fascinating that there is so many different views and I guess... Um, uh, I guess we shall see. That's that's the fun of the markets, really, isn't it? I mean, when, yes, indeedy. And whether screen, screen if you want to go faster. Yeah, and whether whether gold goes up in that environment um, due to its safe haven status, or whether it just gets sold because it's like a cash machine, um, is another interesting um, thing to, for us to see. Um, well. Uh, yeah, I mean, what annoys me about gold is that it's supposed to go up when everyone panics, but it doesn't because everyone buys the US dollar, so it goes down. Mm. And then it goes down when everyone's happy as well, so it never goes up. Right, let's go. Let's talk about comedy. Yeah, so, um, yeah, let's <laughs> let's talk about comedy. So, right, so moving swiftly on, if you're not interested in the area of comedy, you're quite welcome. Just, just piss off, just piss off, will you? <laughs> Some people get upset when we don't talk about financial markets and we talk about other things, which I find quite strange, really. But I think if um, we try to cover lots of subjects. Um, but anyway, so that that's why I wanted to give a, a, a delineation of um, the two different subjects. So, Dominic, you are the perfect person to have on with regard to finance and comedy, being a comedian yourself. And uh, Martin is writing a book about comedy. And mm -hmm. this this idea of having you on to discuss comedy came from Martin mentioning the book that he's writing and me saying this, you know, Dominic is the perfect person and then thinking, wouldn't it be fun to do a pod about it at the same time? So everybody else can get to listen to your answers. Um, but I accept that some of these questions you might not know the answer to. Um, but my first question about comedy is what do you think the purpose of comedy is? Well, the purpose of comedy is to make people laugh and laughter is a basic human function along with eating and breathing and, and sleeping and, and, and having sex. My, my question was really about, um, do you, do you think it's like a legacy from when we hunted and it was, if there was a threat, everybody be really, really tense and then when that threat goes, you would laugh. And so it's like a release of stress. And, and, and so from a, from a bygone time, it's, it's sort of continued over into modern society that we have this kind of releasing of stress with comedy. Yeah, that's probably one use for it. And uh, another is expressing pleasure. You know, you look at monkeys or something, and it's pretty clear they're laughing half the time. Well, that's actually well, they, they do throw a lot of shit as well, don't they? Well, that, that's <laughs> that's such hikes. A, that's a very good point. Like, other do other animals experience comedy? Now, I don't know much about whether monkeys, you know, use comedy or not, but that that's interesting that they do. Yeah, Darwin, so. Darwin did look at at monkeys and. 
things. He, he he said directly that when you look at children and you look at monkeys and apes, you see exactly the same behaviour, the same movements, like they might rock with laughter, stuff like this. So mm. he thinks it's a very similar psychological... Yeah, I'm sure that's right. And you just, I mean, it, there's obviously something basic and primal about laughing, which is why babies do it so much. You know, it's it's it's, yeah. it's, it's a way of expressing uh, it's, it's happiness, the most, comfort. I was say the most natural expression joy, of, yeah. of, of, of of human joy. Yeah, exactly. But what I what I was come <laughs> come support Paul a bit. I mean, what I what I'm really talking about is jokes, really. Um, the, what is it that makes jokes work? Um, and it's when a joke works, people might laugh, and you don't necessarily laugh. You can just enjoy a joke in many ways. But let, let's say a joke is about something that makes you laugh. But we're not really interested in the laughter, which, yes, it does connect up to things like why are uh, monkeys laughing when they tickle each other with sticks, which they do. The tickling is not the same as a joke. Or is it? Well, I don't think it's the same. There's a, the psychological... Uh, tricks that go on in jokes are perhaps what I was more focused on when, when I'm writing this book. Um, there's people have looked at things like um, well, contradictions. The purpose, the purpose of jokes is, and you know, the purpose of comedy is to elicit laughter, was how I think I originally answered the question. And, you know, we then went on to talk about how laughter is a basic human function. Now, you don't need jokes to have laughter, but they are one way to elicit yeah, but, but you it, and that's that. why i was just about to say if you look at how what pranksters monkeys are if you've ever had a pet monkey they are so mischievous you, so, you say that dominic like it's a very cut and dry fact but you, you you know you could got gas laughing gas if you want laughter we could all just have little bottles of that but no what there's something more about laughter laughter's a symptom what's going on in our heads is what what's interesting and uh, they talk, the psychologists talk about it as various kinds of psychic release and things that the laughter represents. So I, I think I just think it's a basic human function. So when you're writing jokes, you uh, do you look at the structure of jokes? Right at the top of the pod, you you mentioned different types of comedy. Do you, do you think I'm going to write some jokes about this partic in this particular style, or how how does that process develop? Um, well, you know, the, lots of different people have different methods. Um, I, I'm quite funny off the cuff, just comparing and something I never did. And I now regret not having doing is what Lee Hurst used to do. The reason he had so much material is he used to just compare his, his own club day in, day out. And he recorded every single gig. And every time he said something funny, he wrote it down and it became part of his act. And so he just built up this, so he just built up this huge sort of armory of material, um, he he built it up like that. You know, there are some guys who who use comedy uh, as as a means to uh, assert their political beliefs or whatever it is. You know, comedy's become a powerful weapon in the culture wars, and and you know, often the funnier person in a in a um, what's the word a skirmish in the culture war that skirmish will often be won by whoever was funniest. You know, it's a very p powerful tool to belittle your enemies and so on. Well, um, what I find, my, what I find, well, sorry to cut in, uh, Dominic. What I find fascinating about this is that the left can't meme. And I, I would say the same thing about basically le leftish comedy. It's, it's not funny. Well, it that didn't used to be the case, but um, there's certainly 
I mean, you know, there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of people on the left who find some of those left wing comedians funny, else they wouldn't have the huge followings that they but do. That's, that's just cultural reinforcement. That doesn't necessarily mean they're actually any good. Well, maybe. That's more like uh, there's arguably more reflection of basic tribalism than actually objectively funny stuff. It is very tribal, though, isn't it? I mean, comedy. It can be, yeah. I mean, uh, personally, I've I've always liked people falling over. I've always thought clowns and slapstick and all that kind of thing is very funny, and that's pretty apolitical. <laughs> I've I've also yeah, found that. Let me chase that up, Dominic. You see, literally, you're. You see, maybe it's say an old person, and they trip over a brick in the street. Is it funny? Well, I think well, that, that depends, doesn't it? Mel, Mel Brooks. What do, what do they it. say? Tragedy is comedy is is tragedy Com plus time. Mel Brooks said, "Tragedy is if I stub my toe. Comedy is if you fall into an open sewer and die." <laughs> hmm. I mean, it, it, there's there's a recognition that. Comedy is very much a personal thing. What you might find funny, I might not, and vice vice versa. Yeah, and, and so I don't. And I think I, the difference is when the clown falls over, you know he hasn't actually fallen over, and nobody was harmed in the telling of that joke. Yeah. Whereas when an old person falls over, somebody was harmed, and therefore it's no longer a joke. Yeah, yeah. And if somebody's seriously hurt, I think that changes. I mean, I I don't particularly go for that slapstick style of humor. My wife finds it very funny so i often look at her sort of strangely when she's laughing at something that she yeah knows i she... mean they're a good proponents of it paul and crap proponents of it yeah it's like all things there are guys who do it people who do satire well and people who are rubbish yeah <clears throat> who are you who are your favorite comedians uh dominic present company uh, excluded well i'm i'm um a bit weird in that i don't actually watch any stand-up at all because i find it really boring really oh my god <laughs> I can't, that, that's so i can't surprising. stand it as soon as is, is, is that because it's two busman's holiday <clears throat> no because <clears throat> you could sit me in front of noel coward songs or you could make me read pg woodhouse yeah or you could force me to watch uh ronnie barker do sketches or the fast show or or yeah. john cleese do uh you know funny walks and make me watch Ben Travers and uh, you know the brilliant old farceurs. I, I you know I could watch Tim Vine all night. Um, well, I've, I say that I'm not seen him for years, but but just like everyone raves about um, Chris Rock and what's that other guy they all talk about? The guy who didn't he get? No, that was Chris Rock who got punched. Yeah. Yeah. They, but what's the other guy? The black guy is really big. Actually, I don't even know his name. Oh, oh, um, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and yeah. Seinfeld and all that, yeah. and it just bores me, to be honest. It just bores me. So wow. I think you've already given us the list, but who, who, who most makes you laugh? Then Dave Chappelle's what you talking Dave about. Dave Chappelle's the yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone goes how great he is, and but, um, you know, don't, don't, I like I like The Office, but as soon as Ricky Gervais starts doing stand up, I'm like, oh, whatever. Oh, I loved his latest show. Oh, that is I mean, I, I wouldn't, I can't, even, I wouldn't, wouldn't even bother switching it on. That's oh my god! I would have. And that's not to say I don't like Ricky Gervais because I like what he does. Yeah, and I like the arguments he makes, but I just don't. It's, it's the it's the the genre of stand up I'm criticising. Mm. I just I'm not that into it. I like you know if you like Victor Borge or someone. 
there are brilliant co- comics, but I'd, I'd much rather watch, you know, Max Wall doing a funny walk or or Tommy Cooper doing magic tricks go wrong than watch some guy going, hey, you know, when you go to the shops and there's some guy who asks you for money or... What's the that, deal with... Dot, yeah, dot, all dot. that. I'm yeah. like, oh, whatever. Well, comparing, I've seen you compare and I, I have so much admiration for co- compares because you have, you don't know what, it's going to come out of anything and they you never know what somebody does and the the speed with which you come out with the jokes always i don't know where me. it comes from paul i do three or four jokes at the top that i always do to tell them and it basically all that does is tell them i'm funny and calm me down and then i start talking to people and funny stuff just happens i don't even i don't write it and you just say the first thing that comes into your head and it, people seem to laugh i don't know i i, I can't attempt to break it down and i like watching good compares be funny with the audience and do you think you're, do you think you're a lightning conductor for the innate absurdity of the universe <laughs> something like that i don't know where this it's inspired i'm just god is talking through when, me when, when you uh, when you look at your own show and you see as you say the first bit is maybe structured but the second bit is ad-libbed do you think what you're saying is funny or is it more like the context uh, well, sometimes I can see it before the audience does. So I go, uh, but just, I don't really know if something goes, I go into sort of autopilot. I, I'm, I'm not even, I can't even analyze it. I just know that I say funny stuff and everyone laughs and but sometimes I watch it back what, afterwards and I'm like, pres- oh, that was good. Presumably once an audience has been warmed up, they're just in a mood to laugh. So if you can sort of tap into that essential goodwill, once you've once you've got them warmed up, you can presumably say pretty much anything, and people will feel an, an ob, almost an, a social obligation to laugh. There's definitely a lot of that herdy herd stuff goes on. Well, there is a bit uh, of that, but there is a bit of that. But I, I I think I wouldn't just laugh at something or find it funny in that context. For me, it's it's got to be clever. It's got to be funny. To me, of course, yeah, you can I, lose a you can lose a room pretty quickly. Yeah, what, <laughs> well, I guess what I'm saying is there's a, there's a lot of inherent pressure to do it. The the, the one of the the most amazing memories I will ever have of a film is when I went to see Airplane when I was a kid and I went to it with my older brother and sister and my recollection I'm sure you know memory has intervened and all all of that but my recollection of that is that basically I only heard about one line in three because at the Solihull Odeon people were almost literally rolling on the floor, rolling in the aisles, rocking with laughter. Mm. And if you're surrounded by a, a couple of hundred people who are doing that, it's it's like the best drug ever. Yeah. 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 That, that's, this is, this is part of what they do say, the theoreticians of it all, is it's about kind of social bonding. And you get that in a couple, you know, a couple, whether you're on a dating thing, they often put... G-S-O-H is the most important thing. Mm. Um, but uh, if, if the people don't share the same sense of humour, they can't laugh together, they don't necessarily stay together. Um, and it's the same with society, that you have all these sort of in-groups and out-groups, so that's a kind of social joke. But like, if you're in a comedy club, you cease to be an individual to some extent in the audience, I mean. Mm. You become part of that organism, the whole audience, and that is quite a a pleasurable thing to cease to be the individual. Yeah, it, it, it definitely unites. There was a very interesting uh, study. I don't know where it was, but I read about it probably 20 years ago. But they sat one kid on his own watching some cartoon and he just sat there and watched it. And then they had two or three sat, sit there and watch it. And, and they watched it and smiled a bit and laughed occasionally. And then they had a group of kids watch it and they all pissed themselves. 
all look the same cartoon. It, it's so And the conclusion they draw to is that we laugh more in groups. It, being well, in a sure. group and experiencing something definitely is a bit like the Heisenberg principle. And, and when you're there with other people, it changes, things change. And I've always thought with comedy, you have to really, you have to be there. Because if you watch it online, it's just not the same. You you miss out on the atmosphere and that there's some there's something about being there that is um, communicated so so well, but yes, people are primed to laugh and they, laugh and they do want to laugh at comedy club, of course, because that's what they're there for. So they they will give the comic plenty of time to 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 show what they can do, and they will allow for fluffs and mistakes and what have you, and th let things go. But I, I think that does. But, you know, co working comics like yourself, Dominic, it, it's still amazing to watch if you think about how quickly you come up with jokes. And, and some of it is just, you say about observational stuff. I there was some comment you made to, to this guy who was sitting with a girl and you, you said, you must do something interesting because, you know, she's way hotter than you. And it was, it was really funny because I still remember it. Um, but uh, but that, that's the sort of thing you, one might, might think but then not say out loud and the fact that you said it out loud made it really funny maybe that's probably right i mean that's actually fairly sort of generic line of comedy is to say the bird's hotter than the bloke and then explore that yeah so you've got it, you, you got a few things in your pocket as it were i guess so i mean oh, you pardon. know the situations situ you get recurring situations and and bizarrely you couldn't say that you can't say that the uh, man's way hotter than the girl. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. <laughs> but right. you can say that the girl's way hotter than the man. But presumably, there's but if also... you say the man's way hotter than the girl, you're in deep trouble. Yeah, presumably I'm going to a... say that. I'm going to do that. Next <laughs> yeah. Time. And there's a really, presumably there's a rich really vein of basically, man of basically just shock comedy. Because well, I, I yeah. think I used this on a previous a previous pod. It's it's still one of the funniest jokes I've heard, which is Bernard Manning. I, I read about this in his obituary in the Guardian of all places, which is not a, a paper I normally read, obviously. And it was uh, it was saying that he came out one night to his club, wherever he had his club in the north, and said, "Ladies and gentlemen, I'd just like a moment of silence, please, because I've just discovered that my grandfather died at Auschwitz. He fell out of a machine gun nest." And I appreciate that may or may not appear as crass and extremely offensive but i thought it was extremely funny and so there's surely an element of like half of humor if not more is is it because it's unexpected and if it's sort of offensive too that gives it an extra free song where there's presumably a split second when the audience goes there's a sharp intake of breath and then people start laughing yeah i thought that the punchline was he fell out of a search tower but it's the same it's the, the same same same, same, it's the same joke yeah yeah well you know often the funniest jokes is going as uh, close to the Probably limits possible. of the boundaries of taste yeah. as you possibly it's can without stepping taboo, over. Isn't it? It's breaking social taboos. Yeah, yeah. But without stepping over, and as soon as you step over, you're in trouble. And the closer you go to the limits, the more sure you've got to be that it's funny, because otherwise, the if it's not, you risk going over the uh, over the boundary. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's the role of comedians personally. I think they should go over the over the limit, and they should be allowed to because that's their their job. That's there's too many people who are trying to reg or effectively regulate well, well, comedians. Sure, Paul, that, that that's what's what I think Dominic was saying. But the point is, he's saying as a someone who actually has to practice it and have an audience um, that when you go a little bit too far, you're you're in dangerous territory as well. So you're on that sort of borderline. Yeah, but there are times when that's 
well, the time that we live in at the moment is one where they're literally trying to censor comedians and cancel yeah. them. Just, I mean, they're trying to cancel Ricky Gervais for his latest show, just just because of some of the comments he said. People don't understand. because he's on the other side of the culture war. Well, exactly. And 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 that's not what Chris, com- comedy should not be. There shouldn't be a cultural war about Chris comedy. Rock was, that was what Chris Rock was slapped for, was for crossing the line of not taking hair loss seriously. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I think I think maybe Will Smith had some some issues about potentially not. It may have been set up as well. I don't know. Um, stranger things have happened. Um, but, NATO, you mean? Pardon? NATO. Na- NATO. It's a sort of conspiracy creeping in. You're creeping in with a conspiracy theory. No, I'm, I'm just saying it, it. It's happened. It happened before. There was uh, some. Um, what's the name of the comic who was slapped on on a talk show, and it was all. It was. Well, all... Um, there was a Russell Harty had got slapped by Grace Jones. Yeah. Oh, was was that? Did that turn out to be set up? No. Okay. I don't it, think so. Was it Andy? Was it Andy Kaufman? Andy Kaufman was apparently. I think it was Andy Kaufman who got slapped on TV and it was one of these big moments and then years later it was admitted that it was all set up and they were the, the guy who slapped him they were friends. But look, I all I'd say is that the I mean the Oscars the viewing figures had gone down a lot. It become something of a a bore and it certainly will make people watch it next year. And so it's possible. I'm not I'm not saying that's exactly what happened. I'm just saying it's just open to interpretation. Um, I think given the trouble that Will Smith got in afterwards, my initial reaction to it being set up was I attenuated it slightly. I thought, well, actually, he's he's not coming off very well on this at all. So perhaps it was real. But if somebody then told me, no, actually, you know what, this really was set up, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't say, oh my God, I've never would have believed it. So that, well, that, the fact is, we're still talking about it. Yeah, well, it was. It's a ma- major event, wasn't it? And it's all publicity is good but, publicity. But it's not exactly an event that will make you watch the ceremony. Uh, I think. It, I think it. it all. All uh, advertising is good advertising. To it's like extent. it's like if someone in the audience shot someone. You know, I'm not going to say, "Oh, I must watch the next year's one." Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's that, but they say all publicity is good pub, publicity and it's publicity. So yeah, it's publicity for, for Chris Rock. He did brilliantly out of it. Um, I think perhaps Will Smith's next film may do very well because of some publicity for it, because everybody's talking about him. So those things will definitely benefit from it, but whether it was set up and you know, it was it was all orchestrated i i, I don't know i'm not i'm not saying I'm not they, they were both fairly high profile to, <laughs> they weren't really scraping around for you know it's true like if you're at a certain level this kind of publicity can make a difference to your career but i'm not sure it applies to people at the level they were operating at yeah, possibly, possibly. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think it's been probably discussed enough. But yeah, I mean, I, mm. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I mean, it was just my initial reactions. <laughs> I, I had a look. I had a look frame by frame at the footage, and I could not see a connection. I could not see his hand 
connect against his face. There was no no frames of it at all. So if you can find it, please send it to me. So and what was the phrase you used, Paul, a blur something? Yeah, there was a blur mask. So if you look at when you're trying to blur something out on a video um, to draw attention to it, you can you can use what's called a blur mask. So effect, effectively, you put this sort of little window over something you don't want to be seen. And it was unclear as to whether it was the blur of his hand moving or a blur that was put over the footage. So what you saw, what was what, well, look, what, look, what, what Paul, was what was going around the internet? Cut, actually, cut this, cut this short bit. We all saw him sit in the audience mouthing away for a good five minutes at Chris Rock, yeah. which was also completely out of order. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that definitely you was. Know, that definitely threatening was. from the audience. But he didn't slap him across the face, I can tell you that much. Yeah, but whether it... <laughs> well, it leave that on one side. The, the incident was, was quite uh, censorious, a uh, cancel culture from, the, from his comments from the seat. But the joke, I think the joke that that most people had had sort of discussed was, um, as most people said, it was a, it was a very lame joke. Yeah, Dominic. Yeah, when jokes go wrong, as Aideen always says, I mean, that's all I think it, that was. It wasn't a big joke, was it? It was. A, it was. A, it was sort of. I. I didn't. I didn't get it to be honest. But it, it, I think he was. I think he was. He's got band some band. weird issue with his wife, and he was defending his perceived manhood reputation. No, he was. <laughs> he was making out. He was defending her, but he seems to be that relationship doesn't seem to be all right. No, anyway, uh, you know, I don't know. Whatever, you shouldn't go up on stage and hit someone. No, that's for sure. No, you mentioned Aideen, who's a, a comic. Um, do you think that that um, I've noticed the difference between men and female comics? They tend to fall into two categories men tend to talk about observational humor i'm not saying women don't ever but women do tend to, to talk more about body image and dating and things like that and those sorts of areas of comedy would you say that's a fair distinction um i would generally say that men tend to be a bit more political than women and women do tend to talk a bit more about body parts, but but <laughs> the uh, that's very very general, and uh, yeah, I mean there are lots more women doing stand up than there were twenty five years ago, that's for sure. And and how do you rate women comics generally? Do you think women can be funny? Because I, I overheard a, a comment in the pub a few months back, and, and someone was saying, name one good female comedian. Well, I, I think Aideen is one of the funniest <laughs> people I've ever met. I, I wouldn't be with her if I didn't think that. But, mm. but to your comment at the beginning of the conversation, when you defined the difference between, you know, not all electricity is energy, or sorry, not all energy is electricity. You know, there are other forms of energy as well, and the two get confused. Not all comedy is stand-up. And people tend to judge comedy by stand-up. Stand-up is yeah. just one subsector of a much bigger field. You know, for me, Gilbert and Sullivan is comedy. Uh, the Matt, who writes for The Telegraph, it's all comedy. Mm -hmm. And, you know... I like I I could spend my whole life watching Gilbert Sullivan. I could spend my life watching Matt. I could spend my life watching Midnight Run. I don't particularly like stand up. I'm talking specifically about stand up. And 
when you and so there's this huge argument women in comedy oh we need to get more women in comedy it's been going on for ages and then it comes back well, well women aren't funny and you, you have this whole thing they're just judging stand-up they're not mm. talking about comedy as a whole mm. and if you this this data is now out of date because stand-up has changed but like i remember one year in edinburgh i shared a flat with Catherine tate and for me when she did her characters and granny and that am i bothered that school kid character I just thought that was really, really funny. And it made me laugh a lot. And I enjoyed watching her sketches. And I'm really pleased that some, you know, it's you, when you make something a national national catchphrase, that mm. takes some doing. Okay. And so some people might go, oh, I don't like Catherine Tate, but I think she's great what she did. But she was never much of a stand up. Mm. You know, her stand up was, and she'll admit it herself, it was like, oh, whatever. I'm not even sure she had 20 minutes. Now, she might spend more time on it today because there are more opportunities for female comedians, but she was a brilliant character actress and she was a brilliantly funny person, but she wasn't a brilliant stand-up. You could say mm. something similar about Miranda. You know, I, 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 I've watched her comedy. I, I did a show with Miranda one year in Edinburgh, which was basically what the Miranda sitcom became. Now, Miranda, again, she just there was always something innately funny about her and she was at her funniest when she was being clumsy and and you know making faux pas with blokes she fancied and all that kind of thing and but again Miranda was never a particularly good I don't even know if she even did stand up you know so I I would define and then you look at somebody like Joan Rivers who probably wasn't much of a uh, comic actress but she was a brilliant stand-up so I I you know not all comedy is stand-up yeah that's very but interesting when, i think when you're asking me your question tim you're asking me what do i think about women in stand-up so i meant and, yes i should have yeah. said comedy in comedy well you didn't you, you you i'm going on one of my rants don't worry yeah, I, I wasn't having a go oh, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't so, sound like a rant you want, to answer, like how, how very dare you <laughs> how very dare you to answer that question um again it's changed now but if you looked at if you went to a new material night in say I don't know, 2000 and at the beginning of the century, 20 years ago, early 20, early noughties, 19 of the people at the new material night would be blokes and there'd be one woman. And of the women who made it in stand up, a disproportionately high number were gay. Okay, there were very few feminine women who made it in stand up and would be work working the circuit. And so you can look into that and you can either go, it, there's something about stand-up that is very male. And in the same way that, you know, if you look at the makeup industry, the majority of people who want to go and work in the makeup industry are women. And of the blokes who work in makeup, a disproportionately high number are gay. You could say this, you know. Or, flight attendants. F yeah, flight attendants. You could say the same. But then you could say pilots. For some reason, pilots is a male thing and there are very few female pilots. Uh, you know, that that might change now but so you know there are different and and so i think it's fair to say that gay men are more feminine than straight men for the most part and similarly gay women are more masculine than straight women for the most part and so there's something about stand-up and i don't know if it's just the nature of stand-up you know and of the women who make it as stand-ups you see them on the telly not that many are trawling the clubs up and down they get off the circuit as quick as they can. 
and the grind of the circuit, having to go to shitty pubs for no money, you know, hoping to get the night bus home, you know, it's, it's it, just being constantly on the road, knackered, eating crappy food. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bloke in his, it's for a bloke in his twenties now. And then somebody will come along and go, oh, well, we need to make it more uh, inclusive for women and blah, blah. Well, I'm afraid that's just the nature of it. It's, it's probably a bit more cushy now, but so you'll find more women doing the, the nicer clubs, which uh, maybe you get a hotel. You'll see more women in telly because there's a big agenda to get women in telly. But when it comes to getting your hands really dirty at the coal face, it's, there's, it's, there's mm. something about it that is more male. And I stress, I'm not talking about comedy. I'm talking specifically about stand-up. Yeah. There's been some research on gender differences, and it seems to be really one of the most definite bits of research, and a lot of research is rubbish, but this seems to be quite definite, that there is a gender difference about jokes and humour and comedy, um, which is that women will, they like, they will laugh at men who are witty, um, even if those men don't find, don't appreciate their jokes, they don't mind. You get that in a couple, you see, the, the the woman might find the husband, the partner, not husband probably, the, the boyfriend very funny and laugh a lot, but the boyfriend hardly laughs at the girlfriend's jokes. Um, but um, the, the, the women don't mind men not laughing at them. In other words, it's for the men to generate the funny jokes and the women to laugh. It's that kind of sexist thing. It's built in uh, to... Uh, you know, it's not a good thing, but that, that seems to be a very clear research finding. There is something fundamentally very sexist about humour. So it's like really a flirting tip. Well, there flir might be. I've heard that I think before. That, like, yeah, there, there might likes, be. And that, yeah. yeah, sorry. And it kind of makes sense. I imagine most people would describe their relationships in a different way. And now there's this big movement. You know, it's not just women in comedy. It's women in football and, you know, I thought football was for the blokes. Oh, no, no, women like football too, and now they're playing it, and we've got to go and watch women play, but they're not as good as the blokes. Well, it doesn't matter. And, you know, uh, and... and well, being, now, being a woman can also be a bloke thing. Well, uh, you know, it's, it, and, and, and you have more ladettes. You know, the, the, in the 90s, the troublemakers in clubs were always blokes. Since probably the last 10 or 15 years, the biggest troubles making in comedy clubs are almost invariably piss women. You know, so something's changed. Don't know what it is, but something's changed, you know. Dominic, thank you so much. Uh, I think possibly um, if if I could ask Martin to contact you directly about the book and if, if anything that you, you guys want to do together. But, you know, sure. as, far, as far as the pod's gone, you know, thank you so much for coming on. And, you know... My pleasure. Yes, can I plug my Substack channel? Of course you can. I have a brilliant newsletter. It is now one of the top 20 finance newsletters on Substack. It's only been going a few months, but please subscribe. It is f called The Flying Frisbee, and you will find it frisbee, F-R-I-S-B-Y dot substack dot com. That's frisbee dot substack dot com. Fantastic. I'll put that link in the show notes. Thanks, Dominic. Thank you. Okay, we'll, we'll see you soon. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Thanks, Dominic. Bye. Well, look, um... I'll I'll put your your handles in the um in the show notes. Um, are you working on anything else, or is it just this book at the moment? Just this book, which, as I say, uh, the publishers do not have a sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a, t a working title, or is that under wraps? 
yeah, well, I have the beginning of it is this is not a joke book, which is not very brilliant. I, I look on it as a little nod at surrealist painting. This is not a pipe. See, nip has in peep. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, but it's basically, I would subtitle it probably something like jokes, puzzles, and philosophical ideas. I, I look on the book as a kind of form of reading jokes, but you have to give yourself an excuse. You know, why Why am I reading it? Oh, I'm learning something. It's not really that you're learning anything. And that, that's sort of how I did all my my best books, I think. It's because I, if they're enjoyable, then that's more than being useful. Right. You mean enjoyable to read as opposed to enjoyable to write or? Oh, yeah, but it should be enjoyable to write as well. What? <laughs> what, I mean, what I mean is, that I'm in non-fiction, and in non-fiction, people typically are trying to find out things, but we don't actually need to find out about jokes or humour. Mm. The only reason we'd read about it is because we enjoy doing it. Yes, I see and, exactly what you mean. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not. It's not like a how-to manual or, or or something like that. You don't. Well, you're not learning about history or or, or, or I, something. I did of that think nature. I should add a chapter which is more like a how-to manual. Not mm. not because people need it, but I just thought it would be interesting as an exercise to say, well, yeah, all right. What well, have it talked about jokes and what the theories are and what the philosophers have said and the psychologists and indeed some of the people like like Dominic's. Uh, insights yeah but the, you know at the end of it in a way it would be nice just to say well what, what is the outcome here well, mm. uh, there's a tommy cooper i just mentioned tommy cooper the very veteran british comic seaside comic um i i looked at his book which is uh, unfortunately out of print and no one reads it he, he actually has some huge library it was a half a million no i'm not making it up half a million jokes imagine how boring that must be but he was nonetheless very successful, and he, he would deliver these jokes, which were not very funny. I looked through some of them, not funny jokes, to uproarious laughter. Um, and that's all about context, the crowd, mm. so, you know. So <laughs> what's going on in jokes is 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 it's absolutely linked to, 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 to sociology. Mm. Um, and too little time that we give to sociology. We treat everyone as individuals, you see. This is an occasion where people are all acting together. There, there, was, there was a comic, I don't know whether it was Tim Vine who did this, but, um, it's, yeah, I think it was Tim Vine. He did the pencil behind the ear thing. Have you heard about that? No. Have no. you heard about it, Tim? No, I don't think so. Well, he, he just says pencil behind the ear, and he just tries to throw a pencil behind his ear. And he just keeps doing it and keeps doing it and, and, and keeps missing, obviously, and keeps doing it and just keeps doing it. And it's like, it just goes on for ages. And then there's this moment where it switches from being totally bizarre to hilarious. And then all of us, like the crowd sort of go through this phase of thinking, when's he going to stop? This is ridiculous. So then suddenly... And they start rooting for him. They start rooting for him and then really cheering for him. And then when he gets it, it's like this huge moment. And it's a very risky thing to try with a crowd. But just utterly... It speaks to what you're saying there about what exactly is funny. And it's the context of it that it's not a funny thing to do, really. But it's made and, funny. And it's the sociology of it, the social linking. Yes. My my absolute favourite is Bob Monkhouse when he said, when I was a young man, I told all my friends I was going to be a stand-up comedian and they all laughed. Well, they're not laughing now. 
Yeah, that's an oldie. That's, that's, that's great, though. And it's still funny because of the way you say it, Tim. Mm. So I like that. That's great. Um, so, so Martin, look, thank you mm. so much for coming on the show. And um, I'll uh, we'll definitely revisit this subject and keep us posted on the book. And yeah. all the very best with it. Thank you both very much. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Martin. Cheers. Take care, Bye. then. Cheers. Bye. 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 This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.